Please turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 10. This is page 88 in the Pew Bible. As we approach God's Word, remember that in the previous two chapters, there's been this incredible work where the Lord has ordained the new priests that are going to bring His people into His presence. There's this, this wonderful celebration. Aaron comes out and he lifts up and his hands and blesses the people. And the Lord responds with fire coming from his presence. It, it devours and burns up the burnt offering, showing his presence and his acceptance. And, and that's where we left the people shouting and falling on their face in worship. We'll read the whole chapter and then go through it bit by bit. We'll be spending most of the time in the first three verses and then exploring parts of the other chapter uh, later as we go through the sermon. This is God's word. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Azathan, the sons of Uziel, the, son of, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose and do not tear your clothes lest you die and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generation. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, his surviving sons. Take the grain of the offering that is left of the Lord's food offering and eat it unleavened besides the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place, for it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offering, for so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your son's due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord. It shall be yours and your sons as with you as a due forever, as the Lord commanded. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary? Since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. 
If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. This is God's word. Well, I doubt that any of you, except for maybe Paul and Chad, and maybe Josh, have heard of SL-1. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe not. I'm going to read a little bit taken right from Wikipedia, but this is about SL-1, Slow Reactor 1. It was a prototypical nuclear reactor in the 60s. On Tuesday, January 3rd, 1961, SL-1 was being prepared to restart after a shutdown of 11 days over the holidays. Maintenance procedures require that RON-9 be manually withdrawn a few inches to reconnect it to its drive mechanism. At 9.01, this rod was suddenly withdrawn too far, causing SL-1 to go prompt critical instantly. In four milliseconds, the heat generated by the resulting enormous power excursion called, caused fuel inside the core to melt and to explosively vaporize. The expanding fuel produced an extreme pressure wave that blasted water upward, striking the top of the reactor vessel with a peak pressure of 10,000 pounds per square inch. The spray of escaping steam water knocked over two operators on the floor, killing one instantly and severely injuring another who died within two hours. The number seven shield plug from the top of the reactor impaled the third man, pinning him to the ceiling where he died. As far as I know, they're the only three immediate deaths from nuclear power. We live, by the way, what, about 15 minutes from the power plant? And yet, I am okay with that. I'm okay with living next to that awesome power because there were designers and engineers who respect it and take it very seriously. There are fail-safes within fail-safes within fail-safes built into that reactor plant. Well, this passage is much like the story of the nuclear reactor. You can't hear it if you're paying attention and just go away, just unmoved. You can't. There was a beautiful ceremony beforehand. God's created this new priesthood. It's a return to Eden in some ways. There's this rite of passage where the the priests come in as lay people and they they come out as the new priest's fire from the Lord comes and consumes the sacrifice. And yet the same day, Aaron's two sons cross the sacred boundary and fire comes out and reduces them to ash. You can't go home tonight and someone says, what are the paths to talk about? Well, you know, a few inspiring messages about how people are good and God can help us, who they help themselves. No. No, no. This is very different. God is not like us. And that is the message tonight. The Lord is not like you. And that is a good thing. The Lord is not like you. And that is a good thing. So let's look at those two ideas. The first is that the Lord is not like you. He makes it clear in this passage, that he is not like you or me. And let's just examine the first few verses, because there's a lot going on here. There is this unauthorized, strange fire, not as the Lord commanded. As one commentator said, the alert reader, you once immediately sense that something is is not right here. If you read the first eight chapters over and over again, you hear, the Lord said, do this, the Lord said, do this, and then Moses did as the Lord commanded. And then Aaron, following him, did as the Lord commanded. And, and in fact, Nadab and Abihu are acting properly as priests. They, they, they take the censers and they put incense in it. They place it. They offer it. They should be doing that now as priests. It's legitimate. But the problem was there was strange fire, not as the Lord commanded. 
Now, what was this? What did they do? We, we don't know. It, the ESV says unauthorized. That's, that's a good translation. Um, literally, it's strange. That's the same word for false gods, strange gods, gods that are not real. It's the same word for the, the strange woman, the adulteress. That means sexually intimate relationships with someone who's not your spouse, going outside that, that sacred boundary and covenant. It, it has to do with unauthorized people entering the temple who are eating or going into the wrong place. And so if you know numbers where Korah, another, another part of the tribe of Levi, he and, and, and several other men, many men, rebel and say, we want to be part of the priesthood too. And as they offer their censers, God kills them. And, and he says to Moses, take those censers and, and, make them part of a cover for the altar so that no outsider, in Numbers 16.40, no outsider who is not a descendant of Aaron, literally no stranger, should enter before the Lord. So this stranger is not something that's unusual or creative, like a strange but good piece of art. This is something terribly wrong, like sexual intimacy out of marriage, a boundary that's been transgressed. What were they doing? We don't know. Um, the best explanation, which is still a guess that I've heard, is that the two men attempted to enter the Holy of Holy Places without permission. And the reason, if you just turn over to chapter 16, which is the Day of Atonement, it starts with, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. So it's connecting it back to this passage, and there's a couple other things too, that there are some possible links and so it might make sense that they tried to penetrate the most holy place without permission, and so doing are burned up. That's the Lord's immediate response. Just like fire came from the Lord's presence to accept the altar, the, the offering on the altar, now fire comes and consumes these two men. And what's the reason that God gives? I will show myself as holy. I will, I will demonstrate myself as holy, and I will be glorified. I will be the most important thing. So this gets to the first, the first point that the Lord is holy. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be sacred. It means to be special. It means to be set apart. As I was talking with my soldiers about this, we don't really use this as, as a secular word much at all. Maybe people might talk about something being extraordinarily beautiful as holy. Um, or something that's a once-in-a-lifetime, very special moment as holy, which I don't think is a very good use of the word, probably because it has this special meaning. Set apart, different. Um, certainly there's an aspect of moral purity, but there's more to it when it's applied to God. I don't have to go to Isaiah 6. I saw that you had a sermon on that today where God is holy, holy, holy. He's not just saying he's separate, 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 or moral, moral, moral. There's a sense of otherness. If you go to Isaiah, Isaiah talks about how for the Lord, the islands are like dust in the, in the, in the scale. The, 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 the oceans are a drop in the bucket. God has made all these things without breaking a sweat. And then in Isaiah 40, 25, he says, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Someone who is, in that way, completely different when it comes to kind. Right? You, can, you can look at the, the Westminster Confession of Faith where it goes on for a very long paragraph talking about how all of God's attributes are, are incredible. And we could say each one of them is a holy attribute. And so we see there's something that says God is, is categorically different than you or I. He shows his power and character and glory in such a way that must be treated as such. And, and what we see humanity on our own, we fall infinitely short from this holiness. 
Just like last week noted that it was, a, in a sense, a new creation story, new beginnings, God was doing something new. Here you have another fall story. Right? Once again, humanity fails to meet properly with God, just as like with Adam, just like Noah, the Tower of Babel, another fall from grace. And, and we see this problem that every time God brings us into his presence, humanity draws near and we fall from his glory and we deserve judgment. Now, certainly God's holiness directly contradicts the creature's view of God. Anytime you look, people say that all religions are the same. Well, they might be superficially have some differences. But this is where we see that God is so different from any other conception that someone would make of. So if you look at the Greeks, right? the Greeks were basically, their gods were basically supermen who were capricious. They, they would change on a whim, could be fooled, could be tricked, could be manipulated. Today, God is more of the, the kindly grandfather. He will forgive. That's his job. After all, we, we have our bad days. If we do a little wrong, well, then one day we can do a little bit more than next and we can get him back on our side. But that is not what Scripture says. The Lord is holy. Now, we read responsibly from Psalm 50, and we read up to Psalm 50, verse 15, and it, it calls people to worship, and then, and then it causes us to examine their motives, and, and then the Lord takes another turret and starts calling out the wicked things that his people are doing, and in verse 16 he says, You thought that the I am was like you. You thought I was like you. In some way you could buy me off. That, that in some way you know, I, 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 would, I would look the other way like your friends, but I do not. That's who I am. The Lord is holy and he's not like you. Now, should qualify that, we talk about how God has communicable and incommunicable attributes. So there are ways that in some ways we are like God. And even, in, in the, even as the catechism would say, knowledge, righteousness, and in some sense holiness. We could be separate and set apart. But there is an infinity to who God is. That puts him in a different category. And because he is holy, he must be glorified by his creatures. Verse, verse 2 is, The Lord said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. I will be the weightiest. I will be the most important. You affirm someone's importance when you respond to them and you respect their capabilities. And the Lord uses the destructive imagery of fire to describe his power and who he was should be respected. We, we have a campfire from time to time. In fact, when I came home this, this afternoon, our kids had pulled their chairs around our inside LED fireplace and we're playing campfire. We teach them, you respect fire. You stick your hand in it and you will get burned and you will regret it. And that's a small example. God is holy and you know, he's personal. He's made the universe. Do you think that you can just casually walk up to him like anyone else? And so when Nadab and Abihu, they, they draw near to God's presence in this proper way, then they come in contact with his blazing glory and holiness unprotected, they are destroyed. And so when God says, I will be glorified, Aaron holds his peace. So God will show his holiness either in response to prosper worship or to judgment. And see, here you see that tension of scripture from the beginning when God drove Adam and Eve out. The greatest blessing to aspire to is also the greatest threat on your own. Seeing God in his glory is also putting you in a place of great danger. And now, this is unusual, so let's just say a few things. This was a special occasion. His response with Nadab and Abihu were given precise commands along with Aaron and the rest of his sons. Do these things this way so that you will not die. It was laid very clearly in chapter 8. 
They were also in the most holy place of Israel. The Lord was present there and concentrated in his glory. In the ancient times where, where God met with his people, there were three really levels of holiness in the world. There was three areas. There was outside the camp or later outside of Israel. And then there was in the camp or in Israel. And then there was the temple itself or here the tabernacle. And then within the tabernacle, there were three areas of holiness. With the outside courts and then the holy place. And then the most holy place. And so there is this transition from death to life. And the closer you get to life, the closer you are to God. But it is a holy danger. It's being like right outside, as close as you can to the nuclear reactor as it is running. They fail to treat God as holy, as different than them. And worthy of special attention and respect. And so there are times in history where God will, because... Of a, as a front of his glory, and also to teach his people, put people to death because they're not taking him seriously. Not only here, but you can think of Uzzah when he was taking the ark. Um, David was taking the ark to Jerusalem, and David was also not following exactly as the Lord commanded. It was on a cart instead of instead of the the poles that were that would have, should be inserted into the ark. And so, when the ox stumbles, Uzzah touches it, and the Lord puts him to death. You can think of Ananias and Sapphira when they lie to the apostles during that time of the Spirit, when when there's so much going on and they they want to look better than they do, and the Lord puts them to death. It's, It's a proper reaction to His holiness, but it's also saying to His people, pay attention. I am holy. I am not like you. And that's a good thing. It really is a good thing. But we'll start and ask the question, is it a good thing? Isn't isn't that harsh? Couldn't God have been a little easier? Couldn't he take a joke? Couldn't he have lightened up a little bit? And the answer is, this sounds very medieval, but it's appropriate. It is fitting for God to answer that way because he is worthy of his honor. Can God take a joke? Sometimes jokes are appropriate, sometimes they're not. I don't know if you remember, um, I believe it was George W. Bush, the Bush after Clinton, and he was giving a speech overseas, I believe, and it was after a state dinner, and he's, he's dressed up, and he's got the seal of the President of the United States, and as he's speaking, he just belches. It's, it was very audible, and it was just, you know, of course, the media had a field day with it, because, you know, it wasn't exactly their darling child, and, but it was funny. And why was it funny? Because at that time, the most powerful man on the earth, who is, who is in this formal gown, attire, and he's got the seal, and he's got the power, he's just a person like you and me. And, and, and the belch just brings him down to size. But that is not what God is like. He is not like you or me. He is perfect. He is different from us. And we even know that there are times when jokes are inappropriate, or the focus should be on a particular person. You think about a wedding day. Who's, who's, who's the person that, who's the glory there? Who's who we focus on? Now, Christian wedding, we say ultimately it's God, but it's, it's the bride that we focus on. And, and the groom but, groom, but mostly the bride, right? It's the bride's day, and it would be very odd if we celebrated the bridesmaids instead of the bride. Because they're there, no matter how amazing they are as people and friends, their whole purpose is to reflect the glory of the bride. Or can you imagine if there was a retirement party where they're celebrating some, some key executive who worked his way up the ranks after 30 years in the company, basically single-handedly kept it from going bankrupt, provided a whole lot of jobs and prosperity, and on the retirement day, they celebrate the new guy who they hired out of college. 
Of course not. It's, it's fitting to celebrate the person who is most important. And that's how it is with God, too. In every situation, as creator and redeemer, this is fitting. And this reminds you, then, that, that you serve an awesome and powerful God. The people who say, I don't like it this way, well, the answer is, that's the way it is. In Genesis 1.1, my, my professor said, this is, this is in the original Hebrew, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, parenthesis, deal with it. Um, it's not actually there, but it's just, there's no explanation for it, but this is how it is. And part of being a creature is conforming yourself to God's reality and not complaining about the way things are. You know, if your child were to stick their hands into a campfire and get burned, you don't yell at the fire and say, that's a little harsh, isn't it? You say, be more respectful about fires. Be careful. And part of respecting God is simply respecting his holiness. And yet it goes much further than that. He's a personal God, whether he's a consuming fire or we want to use the illustration of a nuclear plant today. And his power matters for you. It's, it's a good thing. First of all, he's capable of delivering you. You have a God who is not just like you and maybe can help you out a little bit here or there, but the God who can deliver you from the mess of your sin and death when it finally awaits you. And don't you want a God who is all-powerful like that? Don't you want a God who you know at the end will make all wrongs right, who will bring justice at the end? That doesn't happen if you have a God who's just like you, maybe just a little bit more powerful. No, you have a God who's capable of delivering you. You also have a God who is worthy of your worship. Our hearts yearn to be caught up in a holy glory, and it can't be us. There's what I call the atheist paradox. Many people who are atheists are incredibly brilliant people, and they realize that life should have purpose and meaning. Steve Jobs said something to the effect, I think it was even before he was terminally ill, but it's, it's just so hard to think that, that us as human creatures who have such life and loves and cares and wisdom and experiences that we die and it's just gone. There's a part of all of us that want to live forever. And yet, when I, when I talked to my atheist friend long ago, he's like, you know, heaven, heaven seems sure boring. It's just eternity playing harps, and that's just, just not my thing. And, and, and so there's this, there's this paradox of I want there to be meaning, but I, I can't even conceive of heaven being something I'd want to do. It would be this just unending drudgery eventually. But if God is holy... In this sense here, in raging power and glory, a glory that attaches your, catches your attention, his presence will never be boring. Can you imagine when you are caught up in eternity with him? If we're delight for all eternity, he will never exhaust the infinity of who God is, not, not, not let alone just the fellowship with his people. But we'll be radiating his reflective glory and we'll never get tired of it. We'll never get old. We'll never run out. So God's glory is a good thing because you're God. Well, how should we act in light of God's holiness? Well, we talked about it. Respect him. Respect him. There's two ways that you can respect God and his holiness. And first is to, to accept his judgments. Think about what happened here. This is one of the only narrative sections in Leviticus. Aaron's sons die. And it says he held his peace. Now, can you imagine that? Your two oldest sons just struck down. Your heart is lying bleeding on the floor. You're not even allowed to mourn properly because you're the new high priest, and high priests could not be associated with death because as the ones who are holy and going into this place of life, you're not allowed to go there. 
And yet the Lord says, I will be glorified. And Aaron holds his peace. Sometimes life is very hard. Sometimes life is mysterious. We've mourned with the learned community to what we would say is untimely deaths. It's in the Lord's providence. But two unexpected deaths. Someone who was my age, a father, then a mother as well. Sometimes we just don't understand. But what you do know is that the center of the universe is not you, but a holy God who will be glorified in it all. Now, I do not claim to have experienced the most difficulty and suffering, but I think you've known what I've gone through for the last two years. And still, going through this, this feeling of loss, although I'm grateful to be alive, loss of, of capability, of about to hang up this uniform that I've done for 24 years, of, of playing with my kids and enjoying it, but just being so tired for the next two days. And in some way, I was thinking, it is a literal loss of glory. It's a literal loss of capability, of weightiness. And what do you do with that type of thing? Well, there's the Stoic solution. could always be worse. And that's very true. You know, you use what you have and make the best of it. And there's, there's some wisdom in that, especially as you consider life and fear of the Lord. But there's a deeper answer in this passage. This world is not about me. And it never was. But what I do know is that God will be glorified in my sickness and in my limitations I may not like how the story is going. That might not be the way that I would have written my story. In fact, it wasn't. But I serve a God who is holy. And I submit to his design and in doing so, enjoy his glory. See his glory. And I can see that in him drawing me near through suffering and seeing people have the joy of providing for my family and myself and and the encouragement that people said they received from this story. And I can say, if God is glorified, even though I've suffered loss, then I can be content. And whatever your experience is, whatever your suffering is, as you hold on to the holy God, it will be enough. And so we respect his judgments. We accept them. And then you worship God the way he commands. You tremble at his word. God spoke through Moses throughout Leviticus. It's always the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel, that that three-part saying, But now, in verse 8, God speaks for the first time directly to Aaron. Not not Moses the meteor, directly to Aaron. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, the clean and the unclean. He's saying, "You, you are to do exactly as I say, and that includes making sure that the holy and the common are not mixed, something that must have happened when Nadab and Abihu offered that unauthorized fire. Now, one of the applications we get from this is when we worship, we only include what God has commanded in a Presbyterian church, you have to mention the regular principle in this passage. Brian Group preached on this last year and did a, did a great job going into this, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. But we say from this passage in other places, if you don't see a command or clear example of, of worship in Scripture, then you don't do it. Which is one of the reasons why you notice we won't have a Christmas play during our worship service, as, as, as nice as that might be. We wouldn't have an Advent can, uh, calendar and, and candles doing that as part of a service. Whatever the symbolism, it might be good, but it's not something that God commanded. There, there's been certain church traditions that continue to add to baptism. It start, started with a, maybe a new robe or, or some procedures beforehand, and before you know it, you, you get some of the Catholic rituals, and, and we say, wait a second, the Lord has clearly commanded baptism, and those other things may even say good things, but, but that's not what God's commanded. So you know what? We're not going to do that. 
We want to be very intentional about what God says. Now, do need to be remember, we don't necessarily have the monopoly on worship. I think sometimes some people in the OPC think that the regulative principle means worship should look exactly like what we do everywhere in the world. That's certainly not the case. Whether it's in Puerto Rico, where they're a little bit more animated, or Africa, it, it will be different. Different cultural applications. But with the resources we have, in the culture we have, to the best of our ability, we're worshiping before the Lord by going to his word and saying, what does he say? What is he telling us? And then here's the broader application as you respect God's word. When God speaks, you listen. God's glory required the death of Nadab and Abihu, but it's also an object lesson. Take my word seriously. Now, you and I have the double-edged blessing of God's word in any form that you want. Right? In the past years, in the early church, really up until the printing press, and even then, the Bibles were scarce. They were copied by hand, passed down by piecemeal or word to mouth. People would listen as the scriptures were read together. It was a treasure for the whole church to have a Bible. We have them in our homes. When I, when I go to my unit, I've got a stack of Bibles that I hand out to my soldiers right there, even color-coded with the camouflage. You can get it on your phone. And sometimes, familiarity can breed contempt. Right? You believe that because you have it on your shelf or on your phone, you've mastered God's Word, and you can place yourself in conversation with God as you read it. Almost equals having a chat as you come to read the Word. I love how D.A. Carson would sometimes pray. He would say, Lord, we do not wish to master your word, but to be mastered by it. But each time you come before God's word, whether it's in public worship or as you're reading it, remind yourself, I am coming before the holy God who has spoken in his word. The Lord says, this is the one to whom I will look. He is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And so this week, as, as you come to God's word, whether it's a family devotions or by yourself, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. What do you have for me to hear today? Well, finally, claim his promise of deliverance as you, as you um, respect the Lord. We read Moses' response, and there's actually a promise there. You know, Moses told Aaron that you are to read, you are to eat um, the food. And that was a reaffirmation that you are still a priest, Aaron. That was a priestly duty. I am not done with you yet. And yet, when you see God in action, when you understand who he is, even though there's this promise, you might want to keep your distance. Remember Israel at Sinai, when, when the Lord comes, they say to Moses, you go talk to the Lord. We're going to stand over here so that we don't die. And Aaron didn't eat the offering, at least the sin offering. And, and it's a little confusing there. Moses says it wasn't offered in the inner court, so you should eat it. And the way it was is that when the priest offered the sin offering in the altar of incense in the holy place, he was representing that, being represented in that sin offering too, so he was not to eat it. But on the outside, he was standing as the mediator, and so he was supposed to eat it, and in some way, eating it as the mediator represented that the sin was taken care of. But Aaron did not do that. And, and the best explanation that I can, could find, and, and this, this is a little bit of, we may just not know, but it seems that maybe he thought, I might have done something wrong too, and so now I am not worthy. And so because of God's glory and what I've just seen, I think it's better to pass. You see how it wasn't done arrogantly, but very humbly and conscientiously. And when Moses hears that, he says, okay, 
that's acceptable. But when, when you see the fire, you say, I don't, I don't know if I want to be there in the first place or eat it anymore. But God tells Aaron, no, you are to eat it. This is a reminder that I am not done with you. It's a reminder of grace that when you follow his way of salvation, you have been set apart by the blood. You will not face the flames. You will enter my presence protected and purified. And that's what we have with our high priest Jesus today. Our Jesus is the lamb. We are covered in his blood. And so we do not face the flames of judgment. In another sermon I read, uh, there's a, a great story that, I'm going to, that I found helpful. There, was, there were pioneers who were crossing the Midwest, and so they cross a river, and they're, they're crossing, they're, they're going on the prairie, and they have the river at their back, and shortly after they have their wagons over, and they're moving on off in the distance, over the horizon, they see this wall of flame coming. They think, we're going to die. We have nowhere to go. We are trapped but one of them said, wait a second, what if we start a fire? The fire goes out to meet the flames. And so they, 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 they started a backfire, and, and it was large enough that they could put their wagons in there, and they're there huddled with themselves and, and their kids, and their kids are crying, and they say, don't worry, the flames will not reach you. And as the walls of fire blaze around them on the other sides, they're unscathed as it goes on. And that is what Jesus has done for you. It's the picture of God's mercy. Jesus has faced the flames so you do not have to. And so what that means is you can stand in awe and be enraptured with God's glory and yet not destroyed. And doesn't that also then enhance what it means when we understand that it says in Matthew 121, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from his sins. It's not just a few small things that, that we need a little bit here and there. It is the flames of God's glory that we've been spared, instead perfectly welcomed and secured. A kingdom of priests, serving a holy God whose presence would incinerate anything unclean, but instead brings us up in worship. So people of God, your God is a holy God. He is not like you. And yet, that is a good thing. Please pray with me. Father, you present many pictures of yourself. The father who looks and waits for the prodigal, a, a, a mother bird who shelters the chicks under her wing in the midst of the storm, but also a devouring fire from which we must be delivered in our sinful state. Let us never have a low view of you, something that you are just like one of us. When we come here, we know that we are brought into your holy presence, and because Jesus lives in us, we can see you and yet not be consumed, but welcome and loved. And so we give you praise. Would you animate us this week as we go out with this truth, serving you, being holy, even as you are holy. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.